Good morning, church. It's good to see you this Sunday morning. I hope you've been blessed by being able to come together and worship God together. I know that I have. We're going to continue worshiping God together by now studying his word. So if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it to Acts chapter 6. That's where we're going to be studying this morning. Uh, in case we have not met, my name is Dan Bolio. I've been the youth pastor here since uh, 2017. In two weeks, I'll actually be finishing my fifth year of serving here, which I'm very excited about. Uh, I've been attending here since 2007, so this has been my church family for quite a while now, and it's a privilege to be able to come up here now. Uh, I am covering for Pastor Greg because Pastor Greg is still quarantined with COVID, so please be in prayer for him. And as you pray for him, please also be praying for my wife uh, who has COVID right now and she's quarantining too. So if you saw me come in late and you'll see me leave early, that's why. It's nothing personal, I swear. Uh, we're going to be going through Acts chapter 6 specifically as we continue in our series, The Glory of God Seen Through Merrimack Valley Baptist Church. We are convinced that every action we take, every decision we make, and every heart response that we have is meant to glorify God. To bring him praise and honor and glory and show off his majesty. So we are also convinced that as a church, we want to display God's glory for all to see. So that they too will praise him and honor, them, honor him with their lives. One of the first things that we saw is that we do that as a church by being, as a local church, what is true of the universal church. Specifically, Pastor Greg last week told us that as a congregation, we display God's glory to each other and to the world by acting on the authority that Christ has delegated to us. It's still his church, but he's given us authority to act as his church. Today, what we're going to do is look at God's glory in deacons. So last week, God's glory in congregation. This week, God's glory in deacons. The connection between God's glory and deacons may or may not be obvious to you. It's entirely possible that if you think through your church life, you can remember times when deacons stepped in and gave you just the right care at the right moment, and you remember those dear, precious times. You can clearly see how God's glory was displayed in that. For many of you, though, I imagine that the responsibilities of life that you feel day to day, the busyness of your weeks, the pressures and stresses that you feel probably crowd out any memory of those. And it becomes a little bit harder to understand what is the connection between something as amazing as the glory of God and this one aspect of church government. But that's why we're here today. Whether it's obvious to you or not, I want to help you see that God's glory is displayed through deacons. That looking at deacons is an opportunity to see God's glory, that excellency, that majesty on display for you. In particular, I want to show you that through the three ways God's glory is seen through deacons in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. But if we're going to study God's word and hope that his spirit works in us through it, as we learn about God's glory, it seems appropriate that we ask for his help, too. So let's take a moment and pray and ask for God's help. God, I pray that you be working in all of us this morning. That by your spirit, by your grace, we would leave different than how we walked in. Not because I am anything, but because you are everything. God, we pray that we would be the local church in every way that the universal church is. 
that we would follow you wherever you lead us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So if we're going to look at Acts chapter 6, we need to start with context because that's where the passage starts. The book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, records for us the early history of the church, immediately following Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven. But before he ascended into heaven, he entrusted his people with a mission. He said, you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth until I return. That's what the apostles were doing. And the church was exploding. Take a look at verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, the apostles took the mission seriously. They went out and witnessed. By the power of the Holy Spirit, people got saved. And those people began to witness. And more people got saved. And those people witnessed. And more people got saved. And there was this multiplication of growth happening in the local church. There are suddenly thousands of new converts in Jerusalem, the only place this church is visibly existing. As many as 8,000 new disciples show up. It was in the middle of that God growth, that growth that only God could bring a problem arose. Take a look at the second half of verse 1. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. It would have been tradition in the Jewish community to once a week visit widows in their need, to bring them food, money, clothing, and to make more daily trips to visit widows in more uh, pressing needs. That Jewish tradition carried over into the church. So the church would care for its members, specifically widows and orphans, and going around and taking care of them weekly and daily. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to view this as if you were to today to go grocery shopping, pay for the groceries, and drop it off with an elderly widow from our church, to bring her medicine, take care of her laundry, visit her on a daily level to make sure that she has everything that she needs. The problem was, this was happening for some members, but not all. That as the church grew, caring for this diverse and active new community of thousands of people smushed all together, became difficult. We don't necessarily have to think that there was necessarily an animosity at play, but at the very least, in the midst of the shuffle of everything going on, certain people were not being taken care of. What's amazing is the immediate response. The immediate response was, there arose a complaint. This complaint wasn't like a formal complaint lodged to leadership, written down in a form and submitted in. The word complaint has more of the idea of a secret discussion, an unhappy conversation that's not known to the public. This is murmuring and grumbling and gossip. It's amazing, isn't it? How quickly, in the middle of God doing something miraculous, we fall back on our old frustrations, our old jealousies, our old ways of handling things. In the middle of nothing more than misunderstandings and the weaknesses of just being human. But a complaint arose. This murmuring was causing problems. What's worse is that this problem of certain windows not being taken care of was happening along 
a cultural, natural line in separating what the Spirit had put together. This complaint arose against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. As was mentioned before, these two groups are both Jewish Christians. But even though they're both Jewish, they were known for holding each other at arm's length with often a palpable animosity towards one another because of their differences. It wasn't enough that they were Jewish and now that they were Jewish Christians, but they saw a separation between them because of ethnic differences. The Hebrews, Christians, were born in Israel. The Hellenists were born in the Greek world. Differences in language. The Hebrews spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. The Hellenists spoke Greek. Differences in religious convictions. The Hebrews viewed it that you had to worship at the temple. Hellenists didn't. Differences of customs. Coming from different backgrounds, they handled things different ways. What we see is that at best, this new church was focusing on what they had in earthly common or what they spiritually didn't have in common. And at worst, was actively discriminating against themselves. That's a problem. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that every Christian is stitched together into one church. We are one body under one Lord by one faith and one baptism. But the lack of care for some and this murmuring was causing this earthly barrier to divide the church that the Spirit put together. The reason I go into all that detail is because this problem had the potential to be devastating to the church. Not only is there just a basic problem of widows not being cared for, for a moment, consider your own elderly mother or elderly grandmother or elderly great-grandmother not getting food for a week, not having laundry taken care of, not receiving medicine. That's a problem. But on top of that, With those people not being cared for, it said something about the community. They were supposed to go witness to the world to come be a part of this. And the most at risk and the most in need among them were left behind. This issue threatened the credibility of their evangelism. And this murmuring threatened the community that existed, and community wasn't taking place as it ought to. And as a result, the apostles were now being pulled away from their preaching and their prayer to deal with this issue. This problem affected everything, and it threatened the whole thing. And it was in the middle of this problem that God decided to show off his glory in a new way. In a way that still shines today. Firstly, by this, God's glory is seen through deacons because their office shows the glory of his design. Let me say that again. Their office shows the glory of his design. Let's read verses 2 through 6. It says this, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. 
whom they set before the apostles when they had prayed. They laid hands on them. What we find in this passage is the origin of the office of deacon. Now, when we think of deacons, we probably only think of the office of deacons. Think of it as a technical word, a church word. But to them, it wouldn't have been a church word. It was a common word. Deacon simply means servant. Not the kind of servant that's a bit of an oaf that just picks things up and puts them down where they're told, but the kind of servant that serves at the direction of a supervisor and is charged with full authority to accomplish a given task. That kind of servant. We have servants in this passage. What we end up finding is that this term deacon is used throughout this passage. If we were to transliterate deacon into our English text, it would look something a little bit like this. Where we have servants in this passage, and on top of that we have an official role in which the officials will deacon or serve. So while we don't find deacons in the modern-day sense in this passage, what we do find is the start of what would become those modern-day deacons. And since the second century, Christians have understood this to be the origin story of deacons in the church. So what we're going to do is we're going to see how these proto-deacons displayed and served specifically God's design for the church. Their office reflects the glory of his design. How did they do that? In a couple different ways. First, we see that these proto-deacons displayed and served God's design for the church by maintaining the unity of God's multi-ethnic, multicultural church. Remember, the problem was practical, but it had severe implications for the church. That these practical issues were fracturing practically what Christ had put together spiritually by the Spirit. So these men would be appointed over this business, this issue, to practically care for the church in a way that would show the gospel-wrought unity of the church. Instead of serving based on cultural or pragmatic or natural old ways of handling things, these men would ensure care took place because of the gospel in the church. What's even more so interesting to me is that the selection of the specific men chosen for this position shows just that. The seven men chosen all have Greek names. Remember, the Hellenists were Greek Christians. This could tell us that the people selected to this official church position of practically taking care of church members, the individuals selected by the majority represented the minority that was most in need. The ones who were being neglected were empowered as officials of the church to care for the whole church. Don't miss it. In this moment, The church believed so strongly that Christ has made us one that they were staking their own widows on that truth. They're staking their own mothers and grandmothers, aunts. They said, we believe God has made us one. This is a problem, and the majority of the church took care of an issue that was affecting only part of it because of the gospel. That's what these men would do in maintaining the unity of the church. 
More than that, these proto-deacons displayed and served God's design for the church by supporting the word ministry. They supported the word ministry that Christ had established in his church. At this point in church history, Satan was sending a third wave of attack against the church. The first wave of attack against the church was persecution, trying to stop the church from accomplishing the mission that Christ had given it. But it backfired, and the church spread more because of persecution. So Satan tried to send corruption into the church to stop the church's mission, but the Holy Spirit put, Spirit put a stop to that. So now, in a third wave of attack, well, Satan was sending a wave of distraction to the church, trying to distract the apostles from the God-given priority of preaching and prayer with something good, but something that didn't represent their true priority. The apostles, like pastors of today, needed to practically serve. As members of the congregation, all Christians should be serving, and that includes apostles then and pastors today. But they recognized that they could not be pulled away fully from their true responsibility. They said this, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. They could not do everything, and truly what they could not allow was the neglect of the word ministry of the word going forth in preaching and in teaching. So they would select individuals whom they would appoint over this business. This would be a formal position created to make sure that member care took place. This was not the apostles passing off this job as, well, this is beneath us, someone else needs to take care of this. What they were recognizing was the importance of this ministry and the ministry God gave them. Out of a concern for these widows and a concern for the unity of the church and of the message of the church and of their ministry of preaching and teaching, they gathered together 8,000 disciples into one business meeting. I can only imagine what that business meeting was like. But they got the business meeting together, and in this business meeting, they proposed to the church and say, this is what we're going to do. It is not right that we should not preach and pray to take care of this issue. So, Select seven men from among you whom we will appoint over this. What the apostles did was call the church together to implement a structural solution to this practical problem that would last and take care of any other problems that came up so that the ministry of preaching and prayer, part of God's design for the church, would be protected. They would do this specifically so that the apostles could give themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Literally, what this passage is saying is that these men would deacon tables so the apostles could deacon the word. They would do this by taking on this business. This word business is maybe somewhat casual for us or a little bit too common for us, but it has the idea of a requirement. It's a duty it's a necessity. The apostles said it is important that these Hellenist widows be taken care of. So we're going to establish something new to make sure this happens. That the unity brought in the gospel is protected practically. They set up these individuals in this position, and they would serve in this position under the apostles. Verse 6 says, Whom they set before the apostles when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. 
to be laying hands on these new servants was a sign of blessing and of a commissioning in a function. The prayer points to the fact that this is God establishing this and God calling these men forward and God commissioning them in this role. Them being brought to the apostles is the apostles showing a leadership over them and confirming them in that role. We know that the role of overseeing these servants, these proto-deacons, moved from apostles to pastors when we look in 1 Timothy and we see Paul write out two separate qualifications for two separate offices in the church of elders and deacons. We learn something from the titles given. Elders, pastors, or overseers, and deacons, servants. These men would serve under the direction of the apostles in a way that freed up the apostles to do their unique function. The unique function of these servants would highlight and support the unique function of the apostles by allowing the word ministry to continue undistracted. That those who preach would be undistracted from their task, and those who hear the preaching would be undistracted from murmuring and grumbling and divisions. They served an important task in supporting the ministry of the word, highlighting God's division of labor in the church, making sure that the mission continued. Thirdly, these proto-deacons displayed and served God's design for the church by serving as one part of the whole. Rather than single-handedly figure out a solution, the apostles entreated the church to be a part of the solution. That the apostles, the twelve, came up with this plan and summoned all of the disciples together. The church was then supposed to seek out from among them seven men who were going to then exercise their unique giftings in this unique calling of being a servant of the church. That it wasn't just the apostles dealing with this. It wasn't just the congregation dealing with this. It was everybody. What we see is that the whole church served in unique ways to care for each part. There was an issue affecting part of the church, and the whole church was involved in addressing it. How beautiful is it when God's church follows God's spirit on God's mission together? That's what the church was doing. And this is the heart of the role of the deacon. When we look to the structures of the world and we see pride and we see conflict and we see self-aggrandizing, we see self-promotion, and then we look to the church and we see mutual service, working together, not working to be over one another, but working to be under one another where we see these servants who step up to serve humbly alongside the apostles who will serve in their unique way and the congregation that will serve in their unique way, all serving together harmoniously for the gospel. That shows God's glory. And let me tell you, verse 7 shows the result, and it's pretty amazing. Then the word of God spread. Do not jump over the word then. It wasn't before. It is now. 
It was before this whole thing started, the number of disciples was multiplying. Then a complaint arose and stopped the whole thing. But now, as a result of these deacons, then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. By the act of these deacons, peace was restored. Pastoral work resumed. The most at risk were cared for. Many came to faith, even priests, and the church was ready for the next issue before it could even arise. God's wonderful design for the church hummed on display for everyone to see showing off his beauty and glory. And let me tell you, deacons still do the same thing today. Deacons still meet tangible, practical needs by anticipating and noticing and addressing those practical and tangible needs in the church. They serve personally. They certainly do more than that, but they do not do less than caring for widows and orphans and the lonely and the hurting and the needy, the sick and the dying. They self-sacrificially serve behind the scenes so that the least among us are treated just as greatly as the great among us. They maintain the unity of the church where there are practical, tangible problems that are showing the cracks in our unity, they address them with flexibility, humility, and gentleness in gospel-motivated ways. They serve to display the gospel-wrought unity that Christ brought us. And they support pastoral ministry. They serve to protect the pastorate from the tyranny of the urgent where the urgent practical matters do not dominate the actual priority that Christ has given to pastors to preach and to teach as leaders, and prayerfully so. Think about how God's glory is shown today when deacons serve this way in the church. Members receive practical relief at God's divine direction, demonstrating to them God's personal and practical love and care. The least are treated just as well as the best in the church, demonstrating the shocking realities of grace in God's kingdom. The unity of the church is protected practically and relationally, demonstrating the radical truth of the gospel for all to see in our otherwise inexplicable loving relationships. And the word can go forward and change hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit so that all the more turn and glorify God all the more all because of deacons. What I mean when I say their office shows the glory of his design is that when you look at the office of deacon, consider God's wisdom and power and genius and attention to detail that he would organize his people so thoughtfully and completely and carefully that his design would go undisrupted across all backgrounds, across all languages, across thousands of years for his glory. We can praise God for what we see in deacons. That's number one. Three ways God's glory is seen through deacons. Their qualification shows the glory of his character. 
That qualification shows the glory of his character. The apostles made clear the qualifications necessary for someone to be considered for this role. Specifically, they say this in verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. This list may seem shockingly short to you. There may be other things that you could think that you would want to put on this list as you consider how important this office is. But I think that's significant too. We often will want to focus on what a deacon does. The Bible focuses on what a deacon is. Who a deacon is called to be, not do. Specifically, as we unpack these different things, we see that these seven men were to be of good reputation. They were to be known by the congregation. They were to be known as good, faithful Christians. It doesn't mean that they're perfect, but it means that their integrity remains unquestioned. That they're known by their peers and known to be faithfully, faithfully following after Jesus. It's this idea that Paul actually unpacks in his list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 through 8. Paul lists out, likewise, deacons must be reverent. That's to be respectable, worthy of respect. And following this, what Paul does helpfully for you and for me is to explain a reputation in what? Respectable in what areas? And what he lists out for us is that to be of a good reputation has three they-must-not-be's and three they-must-be's. Three negative characteristics they must not be and three positive characteristics they must be. Paul says that to be of good reputation means they must not be double-tongued. A deacon has to be fleeing every sign of slander and flattery and gossip. Their words should show that they are not man-fearers, but God-fearers. That they do not say one thing to one person and another to another to try to make people happy. And we can understand how important this is if these officials are going to be the ones dealing with issues of unity. Secondly, deacons must not be addicted to wine. These individuals need to be uh, in control of their own cravings, not indulging in substances that would enslave their heart or their mind more than Christ. That to take on this sober job requires a sober mind and a sober heart, and that they give their all to Christ, not to things. Thirdly, deacons must be not greedy for dishonest gain. Deacons must have their attitude bent towards sacrificially giving, not selfishly getting. Their lives need to be built on giving rather than receiving. They trust Christ when Christ says it is better to give than to receive, so they are free of greed. Deacons must not be deceptive or cut corners or live their lives to get, but to give. On the positive end, deacons must be holding on to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That tells us first and foremost that deacons must know the gospel and Christian doctrine. But more than know it, they have to hold on to it. Hold to it dearly, preciously, more than any other philosophy they could find, more than any other truth they could find. The gospel reigns in their hearts. And not only holding on to it, but they must live it out with a clear conscience. That gospel truth has translated into gospel living in them. 
This, among every other thing listed, must be tested and proven. That the congregation knows them, knows their character, knows their conduct, and knows that these things are true for this candidate, for this position, before they enter this position. And lastly, they must be faithful in family life. They must show by the way they take care of themselves and everyone else in their family that they know how to lead and serve with Christ-likeness and humility and flexibility and love and discipline. They set a good tone in their home with strong Christian beliefs, whether or not they have children and whether or not their children believe. This is what it means to be of a good reputation. They must also be full of the Holy Spirit. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. I hope you take a second today just to ponder that anew. You are sealed by the Spirit. You are being empowered by the Spirit for a mission. But more than just having the Spirit, these particular deacons must be full of the Holy Spirit. They are sensitive to the Spirit's leading. That when you look at their lives, they are spiritually sensitive in a way that shows the fruit of the Spirit. That when you look at the way that they serve in all the different areas of their life, you can see the power of God at work in what they do. More than being full of the Spirit, they must also be full of wisdom. It should come as no surprise that church officials who will be dealing with issues of disunity and passing out uh, the goods of the church, stewarding the things of the church, taking care of people must be wise. But being full of wisdom flows from being full of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom. To be filled with the Spirit means to seek out the Spirit's wisdom, to seek out biblical wisdom, to seek out the wisdom of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. More than just seeking out this wisdom, these deacons must be known for employing wisdom. They need to know how to de-escalate tense situations, navigate difficult decisions, steward well, communicate clearly. They must be wise. These three requirements may seem like a high bar in one sense, but in another, when compared with general Christian imperatives, they seem rather ordinary. Think of it this way. What Christian should not be wise? What Christian should not be full of the Spirit? What Christian should be unfaithful in their marriage and addicted to wine? What this passage tells us then is that more than anything, a deacon is simply a model Christian. They are living the exemplary Christian life, not through their own power, but because they understand that gospel culture comes from gospel doctrine, and gospel doctrine must lead to gospel culture. They trust Jesus for every part of their life. When we look for deacons, we should be looking for the most encouraging supportive, faithful among us. We're looking for character, not necessarily a particular skill set. We look for those who are ready to protect the word ministry, not attack it. How does this show God's glory? I think it shows God's glory in two major ways. First, it shows God's glory because God is these things. Let me tell you, God has a perfect reputation. He is holy. 
He is completely perfect, never having made a mistake. He is light and in him is no darkness. You can taste and see how good our God is. Say he's full of the Spirit. We understand that the Spirit of God is God. So the fruit of the Spirit is God's fruit. God is peaceful, patient, kind, good, gentle, self-controlled. And God is wise. There is no wisdom like the wisdom of God. Who can know the mind of the Lord? Or who has given him counsel? We can look at deacons who fulfill these qualifications, and when we do, they reflect for everyone to see the glory of God's character through imperfect vessels. We see what our God is like when we see these deacons serving. I think even more than that, shockingly to me, is that these qualifications show God's glory because God requires these things. These qualifications are not optional. They are necessary for this position. Think about what that means. That means that our God is so loving and so caring and so compassionate and so concerned for his bride that he requires this standard of servant to serve her. That God chooses specific individuals from the church who will serve the rest of the church, and God chooses the best of the best to serve the rest. We can be grateful that our God does not choose the worst to try to just, you know, mop up things around the church but chooses faithful servants to take care of us. That is God's requirement. We see that in the men that were chosen. Stephen was known for his preaching. He performed miracles. You'll see that in verse 8. He would preach to crowds of people who would become Christians, and he was so passionate and so devoted and so effective on our Christian mission that they killed him. The world killed Stephen because they knew he would not be stopped on this mission. Stephen was no slouch that couldn't cut it as a pastor, so he was a deacon. Stephen was the best among us. Philip is known as Philip the Evangelist. He traveled to Samaria in the midst of persecution and spread the gospel there. Philip was no slouch. He was the best of the best among us. That is who God chooses to be servants of the church. How beautiful is that? God's glory is seen through deacons because their qualification shows the glory of his character. When you look at the qualifications of the deacon, consider God's love for you and his entire church that he wants the best of the best to be the servants of his people, ensuring that everyone is cared for as they ought to be, as if by his own hand in his providence. Thirdly, their service shows the glory of his own service. This one does not come as clearly from this particular passage, so we're not going to spend that much time on it, but the role of the deacon does nothing if it doesn't point to the greatest servant of all time, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus said of himself in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Taken literally, again, transliterating it, Jesus said of himself, For even the Son of Man did not come to be deaconed, but to deacon. The Holy One of God, most deserving of all praise and all honor and all adulation and all ease and all comfort, got up, tied on an apron, and got to work. And he served. And he served to the point of death, giving his life as a ransom for many. This is a really good time for me to mention. If you have not recognized your own sinfulness and your need for a Savior, now is the time. We've all done wrong. We have all sinned, and we are all deserving of punishment for that sin. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to the earth, lived a perfect, sinless life, and died to give his life as a ransom for you. He paid the price for your sin for you. Come to him, trust him, receive the forgiveness of your sins, and follow him with your life. That's who our Savior is, a servant. Paul, in Romans 15, summarized the totality of all the mysteries of the incarnation of the eternal Son of God by simply saying he became a deacon. He served. Our Christ served in word and deed. He preached the gospel preached that the kingdom of God was at hand, that all should repent, but he also served indeed. That he fed people. He met with people. Often people no one else was willing to meet with. He met with his enemies. He met with friends. He met with sinners. Met with sick people. He healed people. He even washed the feet of his disciples. Our God served. And now our deacons imitate his serving ministry. We are all called to pick up Christ's demonstration of service. To be a Christian means to be a follower of Christ, and to follow Christ means to serve like Jesus. All of us are called to a lifetime of serving like Jesus, by the power of Jesus, for Jesus, and with Jesus. But some of us will also be selected from among us to serve in a formal official service ministry to take care of the rest of us and mobilize the rest of us to take care of the whole body. The whole body serving in each unique role with each unique gifting to take care of each part. Now our deacons look to the demonstration of humility and service of Christ and they humbly serve. It means you can look at the day-to-day self-giving ministry of the deacons in our church and see the glory of Christ's own service reflected in their service. I encourage you, when you look at the practical, day-to-day, humble, self-abasing, God-glorifying service of the deacons, be reminded of our God's own humility and service expressed perfectly in Christ and demonstrated for you by these men, and then serve. So we take these three different ways that God's glory is seen through deacons in. 
I think it becomes clear that the importance of deacons cannot be overstated. Deacons accelerate the ministry of the church. They are so important that God himself ordained that there would be this official role in the church to make sure this ministry of practical, tangible care took place. When it does take place, needs are met, evangelism is credible, unity is maintained, peace is experienced, the word goes forth, the mission continues, lives are changed by the power of the gospel, meaning that the spiritual effects of deacons will be felt throughout eternity. And that also means that when we downplay or misuse the office of deacon, we miss out on seeing and experiencing the glory of God. Stated positively, when we train up, trust, empower, and lean on deacons, God's glory is displayed for you. So how should we respond to all this? Let me share you with a couple ways before we close. Number one, praise God for deacons. They're his decision. He calls them. He prepares them. He leads them in the service. So thank him when you see deacons serving in our church. Second, be a blessing to your deacon. God loves his servants. And he promised his deacons a reward. A reward that they would receive the respect of their congregation and that they would be emboldened in their ministry. You can be a part of God's reward to a faithful deacon by being a blessing to them. If you don't know who your deacon in our church is, we have handouts at the connection desk. As you leave today, go back there. Look, we have it broken up by zip code. You can find exactly who is your deacon, and I am asking you, please, text them, call them, send them a letter, give them a gift, invite them over for a meal, thank them, be a blessing to them for their service. Thirdly, make the role of deacon more effective. Instead of placing an expectation on them that they will know your issues, reach out to them with your concerns. When you have a practical, tangible need, take on the burden of reaching out to them rather than them waiting to reach out to you. You make the role of deacon more effective and easier and more enjoyable when you do that, please reach out to them with any tangible, practical concerns you know of in the church. Reach out to them. Fourthly, be a deacon when asked. If you fit this role, you're faithful in service. You're full of the Spirit. You're full of wisdom. You are faithfully following after Christ and have a reputation of doing so. When you're asked, say yes. If you can't fit that qualification, be the kind of person who does. Grow in your faith. If you happen to be asked year after year and you just feel like you're just not there yet, find a mentor. Buddy up with a deacon who is already serving and learn from them. Grow. Become the kind of Christian who would be asked, recognized by the congregation as faithfully and humbly following after Christ. Lastly, pray for our deacons. They are in some of the toughest, stickiest situations of the church. They need your prayer. 
you have the opportunity to give them that air support that changes everything because God is in that situation. So please pray. And that's how we're going to end the sermon today. What I want to do is I want to ask that if there are deacons in this service, if you would please stand up. We want to honor you as we pray over you. So if you are currently a deacon, can I ask you to stand? There we go. Over here. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. Let me pray over you. God, thank you first and foremost that there was a morning when everything changed. When we experienced your salvation for the first time and you brought us from death to life, thank you. Thank you for this morning where we could study your word and understand how your glory is on display through deacons. And God, thank you for our deacons who faithfully and humbly serve behind the scenes. God, thank you for all that you are doing in Merrimack Valley. I pray that more and more, year after year, your glory would be shown. That we would see it in each other and that the world around us would see it. That because of the deacons in our ministry, just like verse 7 says, that the number of disciples in Nashua and Merrimack and Amherst and Milford and Bedford and everywhere else represented by people in this room and watching online, the number of disciples there would multiply greatly. And that the spiritual effect of these men would be felt for eternity. Give them strength and boldness, Father. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.